And we're back in the car for episode 51, the Bernie Williams episode. It's not the Bernie Williams episode, but Bernie Williams, one of my all-time favorite Yankees, he was number 51, so I'm just going to call this the Bernie Williams episode of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. It's a rainy Tuesday afternoon here in New York. I got a nice long ride ahead. There's not much traffic on the road, so just going to tell you my story. And episode 51 will be a continuation of episode 46, which was my second uh, podcast called Tales from the Trenches. And that particular episode kind of wrapped up with my Brooklyn Dodger screenplay falling apart in advance of what should have been a green light, but me getting hired for an entirely different project to write an adaptation of Diane Tittle, that's Wyatt Tittle's daughter, an adaptation of her autobiographical memoir, which was titled Giants and Heroes. So the guy who hired me for the project was, uh, he had been a film school grad and he was a music video producer, director, and I'm pretty sure that he worked on a Madonna music video and he definitely worked on a Pearl Jam video. Not the Pearl Jam video, which had my name, Jeremy, but he was a guy who was very sharp with editing and montage and knowing where to put the camera and all of this stuff. He's a very talented guy. Everybody who knew him and knew that we were going to be working together was very excited for me. Like, this guy's a genius. This is great. So, the bulk of the story, the idea was that in some ways, through the eyes of the daughter, we see the kind of highs, lows, and in-betweens of Y.A. Tittle's playing days. And I was given a shit ton of notes, like before even starting the research and the work, but ideas for scenes that the you know proposed director wanted in the story. Honestly, I didn't think much of too many of them. I kept some of them in early drafts, but basically, Tittle's early professional career, nothing of consequence, or nothing of major consequence really happens. So, oh, and the, he thought that I should use a flashback structure. I immediately, that, no, I did not, this did not seem like a flashback structure kind of story. This was, to me, a story that needed to find an anchor in some version of the present and then roll forward. Didn't want to do flashbacks, didn't want to do a framing device, prologue, epilogue. Now, I've written scripts with those. This one was not, in my opinion, it was not going to work. It just wasn't going to work. So, Tittle was born 1926, I believe, and the first time he made it deep in a postseason where he had a chance to, let's say, win, it wasn't the Super Bowl and it was a title game, it was 57. He was playing for the San Francisco 49ers. And the 49ers back then, and for the next 20-some years, played at what was known as Kizar Stadium. And Kizar Stadium is a trivia, like a point of reference. The movie Dirty Harry, there is a famous, infamous, unbelievable scene set at Kizar Stadium. 
where Clint Eastwood's Harry Callahan corners the Scorpio killer who works at Keysar Stadium, as it turns out. But Y.A. Tittle, by the time he was 30, looked a lot older. And as my script opens, it opens with him the morning after a game in which his 49ers lost, and he got shit beat out of him. And he basically, at age 30, is already moving around like a geriatric. He is moving so slowly, and every part of his body hurts. This was, you know, such as life the football player. And so I always, my every iteration of my screenplay began in 57 with Tittle after a loss, and then tracked forward. So my first draft of the screenplay, ton of research, I had a ton of ideas for scenes and characters. Now, for those who don't know, when we're talking about a motion picture screenplay, it's not like a novel, and the general idea is, and this is not exact, that's why I say general idea, one minute of screenplay for one minute of movie. So in theory, a 100-page screenplay would translate to a one hour and 40 minute movie. Now, it doesn't really work out exactly like that. Some filmmakers shoot faster than others. You know, there's a joke, Martin Brest, terrific filmmaker. His scripts were shorter. He held shots longer. Quentin Tarantino, on the other hand, Woody Allen, shot very fast. And they could have way more pages than what ended up in terms of minutes of screen time. But the idea is... Don't go over 120 pages, and if you can get it closer to 110, even for this kind of a biographical story, it's fine. We're not making an epic. This isn't going to be a TV movie or a miniseries. Just tell a story. Now, I knew that. I got the research done. I had um, dozens of ideas for scenes, and I started to write the first draft sometime in the fall of 2020, so I was 26 years old at the time. And I finished the first draft, which was 170 pages, way too long. I knew it was too long, but I also knew that within those 170 pages, there was probably a really good movie in like 115 pages. So I didn't want to start cutting because, of course, I was editing myself as I went along. I didn't just wake up one day and sit at the typewriter like Stephen King banging out 500-page novels in a couple of weeks. It took me probably a month to churn out that first draft of 170 pages. I liked a lot of it. There were a couple of scenes that, in my mind, were running long. Um, But it's not like when I finished it, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to cut this, I'm going to cut this. I didn't know. I, I didn't actually know what was going to end up being cut or, you know, in a fairy tale fantasy, the director says, actually, this is all great and this could be a miniseries. This could be more than what I was thinking. So I sent it to him and he loved it. He was flabbergasted that I was able to turn in what he thought was such, you know, high quality work so quickly, but it didn't really seem quick to me. It was just, you know, I was knocking out pages every day. I wasn't racing through it, but I had a story to tell, and I had scenes with through which to tell the story, and that's what I did. 
So the 170 page draft, which I'm not sure it even exists anymore in any, in any format, Tittle was with the 49ers until um, the 1960-61 season. And then they kind of started to move in the direction of going to a, a young quarterback named John Brody. It appeared that Tittle's career was over. He gets like this miraculous trade to the New York Giants where he's ready to retire. And he thinks he's going to retire, but he decides, cliche, but it literally happened. I'm going to give it one more shot. This I'm not going out like this. I'm not going out right in the bench when I know I can still play football. So Tittle goes to the Giants where he, oddly enough, has his greatest glory, even greater than his peak and his, his you know terrific years that he did have in San Francisco. So what I figured, and the, um, the director didn't actually give me notes on the 170-page draft. It was just an understanding that I needed to get the length down to 120. He said something to the effect of, this is all so good. I don't know how you do it, but I trust that you'll figure out how to do it. Thanks. Okay. I mean, no writer doesn't want to hear that every bit of his material is solid and readable and fun. Okay. So the way that the script broke down started in 57. It ended in, well, this particular version ended with Tittle retiring. It was sometime in the mid 60s. The later versions went in a different direction towards the end. But the script broke down roughly, roughly 50-50 with Y.A. Tittle's years, the last like four years in San Francisco, and the kind of main three seasons in New York. I made the decision that the stuff in San Francisco, huge chunks of it had to go because there was about... 70 pages worth of material with Tittle in San Francisco and 100 pages of material with Tittle in New York playing for the Giants. So that was not easy. I went to work whittling it down and cutting, 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 cutting. So the first act of the script, not well into act two, the first act ends with Tittle already outmoded. There was a ton of material with Tittle and John Brody. There was a lot more stuff with his kids and more stuff with the wife and looking for a new place. What's the point of getting a new place? You're, you know, you're, I cut it to the bare minimum to get the idea of this guy is great. He's getting hosed. It's time to move on. So I got it from like 70 pages, maybe even more than 70 into like 26 or 27 pages. And we got him to New York. And I made some adjustments in the New York years. I cut certain things. And then I had a 150-page draft, which I really like. Still too long. And that draft, and this has nothing to do with anything, but at that particular time, a number of New York Jets football players worked out at Bev Francis Powerhouse Gym. One of them was a former New York Giant who won a Super Bowl with the Giants, John Elliott, or Jumbo Elliott, if you prefer, and Jumbo Elliott knew Y.A. Tittle personally, and he actually gave me a couple of things. There were stories that Tittle had told him at some luncheon or something like that, and I was able to incorporate into the script. And Elliott 
read my 150, well, he told me he read it, and he said he really, he really enjoyed it, and, you know, I wasn't expecting, I thought this would be boring, this was really a lot of fun to read, this is terrific, I hope you get it made, whatever, so that was another, you want to call it a feather in the cap, and a final analysis means nothing, but it was really cool, and I continued working, and I got the script down to 117 pages, I just kept chopping away at it, chopping away at it, and continued to just take out stuff that wasn't absolutely essential and mandatory. And the weird part, if you will, the 170-page draft, and even to some extent the 150-page draft, had more of Diane's book in it. Even though, as I said, it was not a cinematic book, there were more scenes that I took from that book that ended up in the script. And in the 115 to 120 page draft, there was a lot less. And it it almost became not an adaptation anymore is what I'm trying to say. That it basically was Y.A. Tittle's story, but not an adaptation of Diane Tittle's memoir for whatever that's worth. So I finished 117-page draft, and the guy who got me the gig, the literary agent and writer and sometime producer who had worked in Hollywood with a lot of big hitters, he read that 117-page draft, and he started crying. He was crying with me on the phone. And he said, I just hope that I had a little bit to do with this because this is really good work. And he was a guy who hated everything. He hated everything. The first couple of scripts of mine he read, he thought were just complete trash. Hey, fuck you. No, no, no. You're a good writer, but this is trash. So anytime he didn't hate something, that was good. And I had had a scene that I made up so Y.A. Tittle sold insurance. As absurd as it is, this was a guy, a two-time NFL MVP, you know, AP Player of the Year, Hall of Famer. He sold insurance door-to-door. Wasn't with a big company. He was on his own. But he sold insurance door-to-door just to make ends meet. Remember, the players weren't making millions of dollars, even inflation-adjusted. They were making money, but nothing like proportionally speaking, nothing like now. So, I wrote a scene. This was something that I created. I did not get this from Tittle's autobiography or from Diane's memoir. But I wanted to explain, and this was in the San Francisco when he won Player of the Year in 57. I wanted to show what kind of guy this was. In a comedic way, but also in a Hey, this is serious shit. He doesn't have unlimited funds here. He's got to make money when he's not playing. He can't just have a full off-season of relaxation. He's selling fucking insurance. So he has only a couple of leads, and he goes to this home of a family in the neighborhood with his daughter, and he meets with this couple who's fairly well-off, we're led to believe. We don't know what the guy does. They're fairly well-off. And... um. They're not going to go with him. And you can, the way the scene is written, he's calculating that this is going to not be okay 
he was counting on their business. So he pleads with them, asks them, and they're making good points. Why shouldn't we go with a larger firm? Goes back and forth. And all of a sudden, they got two boys, this mother and father. Two boys see who's at the kitchen table with their parents, and they go crazy. And YA suddenly light bulb goes off and he says how would you boys like to play a game of football with this old QB and the kids go crazy and Tittle ends up playing a game of two hand touch where it's he's the permanent quarterback and alternating who's on offense and who's on defense with the boys for hours and they sign the deal Now, when I wrote this scene, I wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm so good. I just said, no, this is cool. This shows he's using his his notoriety. He's using his celebrity to try to get more business. There's nothing wrong with that. But I wasn't thinking that I did anything out of the ordinary. My agent and mentor said, that's the scene. That's the scene that's going to get this made and the scene that people are going to remember. And when I'm thinking about it, That's why I'm tearing up, even though it's not a sad scene. But you had to have really gone deep with everything you did, from research to understanding the characters. And then he even said, you made that up. I know you didn't get that from any book because I would have already, he would have already known the story if that had been true. So anyway, he's telling me how great it is. He's working on, you know, getting me paid, getting me some advance payment because the contract was a little sketchy in that regard. And we go forth and I meet with the director. He comes, you know, he comes into New York. He, as I say, living in the, in the Pacific North, Northwest. He comes into New York. We go over a bunch of stuff and he loves the script, but he thinks the ending needs to be better. Now, the ending that I had, you know, Tittle retired, and I ended the script. So what I thought the script was about, and this is the thing, I was the writer, and I read the autobiography, I read the memoir that his daughter had written, obviously, and I did a ton of research. What I thought this was about was a man, I thought the irony of his life was that he never won. Spoiler alert, he never won a championship. He was a man who hated to lose, who burned to win worse than anybody, like he's the Michael Jordan level of hating to lose. This was a guy who was a brutal, ruthless competitor. You know, remember that shit with Tom Brady with the air? Tittle was the kind of guy that would have done that and slammed a football in your face. Tittle could not beat you badly enough. And there are scenes, true to life, where he plays games with his daughter, like ping pong, where he is beating her 21 to nothing. He is beating her in billiards. He is beating her so horribly, but that's how he was wired. So this was a guy who was beyond competitive and whose hatred of losing was not normal. It was a pathological hatred of losing and a need to win that was also not normal. Like everything was blood sport with him even playing a friendly game of ping pong with his daughter, beating her 21 to one game after game, 21 nothing, 21 one, 21 to two. That's how he rolled. That's how he was wired. And he 
unfortunately never won. But my original ending was showing him now about 40, 41 or 42 retired, playing shuffleboard with his daughter's fiance and playing to win. And I thought it was a kind of humorous, ironic comment on the rest of the story. And the literary agent thought it was okay, but when I think back on it, he wasn't entirely sold, even though he didn't tell me that. He liked so much of the rest of it, he just didn't feel, he didn't want it, like, get on my case about the last couple of pages, not quite, not quite selling it. So the director flat out said, I think everything is great except the last few pages. You need to come up with a better ending. Got, I can't send this to anybody. I, you know, and he had you know, contacts, he had people here. He was very close friends with a couple of major, major players in Hollywood. One person who had recently produced Fight Club, someone else who was working on a, on a Keanu Reeves film, not The Matrix. Big hitters. He said, the script's gotta be right before I show these people. I know that, yes, there's always a chance they say, oh no, we can work on the ending, I love it. He said, but we wanna get this as close to right. And I wasn't fighting with him, I wasn't arguing, he was right. So I felt I needed to rethink, well, maybe this story is not exactly about that. Maybe it's about a guy who right up until the end considered himself a failure just because he did not win a title. That his life is either a success or a failure, and it's a failure because he did not win a championship that ultimately he lost when it mattered, even though there were many extenuating circumstances in his, you know, back-to-back-to-back defeats in the title game. Something always went wrong. That's uh, that's baseball, Susan, or in this case, that's football. But I started thinking, what can I do to, instead of having the kind of ironic wry chuckle, a wry smile to close, what if we close with a real serious tearjerker type of moment? How do we do that? How can I come up with that? So I do a little more research. And Y.A. Tittle was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1972. So now we're talking about my screenplay, my 115 plus pages, starting in 57 and ending in 72. Starting in 57, ending in 72. It's 15 years. Taking Tittle from age 30 to about age 45-ish. But again, he looked older, always looked older. But I said, okay, I'm gonna end the script with his Hall of Fame induction. Did he give a speech? No, he didn't give a speech. Now that didn't stop in a beautiful mind. They made it seem as if John Nash gave a speech. He really didn't give a speech when he won the Nobel Prize, but I'm gonna do something at his Hall of Fame induction. I don't know what, but there has to be a moment. Uh, rise to your feet as the credits roll wiping the tears from your eyes. There's got to be that kind of moment. So, just kind of curiously say, who was being honored on the same day? And as luck would have it, historical lucky break at the time, his teammate, the great New York Giant footballer, Andy Robustelli, is also being honored. He was in Canton, he got the, you know, the, the, the jacket. Was it the yellow jacket? It's not the green jacket. It's the kind of uh, gold jacket. When Tittle is announced, now again, this was a guy who played hurt like nobody before or since, 
a man who refused to come out of games, you know, had ACL tear, I don't give a fuck, I'm playing, concussions, couldn't remember his name, couldn't remember what stadium he was in, and he was going out there and playing. Now, this is not to say that that's okay or good, it's more to show how this man was wired, which was that he did not give a fuck about anything other than winning. And if he could breathe, he could play. He played with a collapsed lung. He could barely breathe. I don't give a shit. I'm playing. You're not taking a fucking ball away from me. That's the kind of guy he was. You know, a nice guy off the field, funny guy, jokes, but on the field, guy was merciless. So, he considered his life and career a failure simply because he had opportunities, never won the NFL title. It wasn't called the Super Bowl until long after he retired. When he is announced in Canton, 1972 Hall of Fame inductee, Gelbert and Abraham Tittle Jr. The place goes absolutely bananas. So he was a beloved figure. And he was a beloved figure in large part because, not because he was a lovable loser, but because he was such an incredible competitor. He was undersized even for the time. Everyone knew he got the shit beaten out of him at every turn, and he just kept going. He kept moving forward, as Rocky Balboa would say. Don't stop nothing. YA Tittle was don't stop nothing. He gets this unbelievable ovation from the from the assembled throng at Canton, Ohio, 1972 Hall of Fame induction. And it's so loud that he's embarrassed. He doesn't understand. And my script ends with him almost sheepishly, he's genuinely shocked, turning to his old teammate, Andy Robustelli, and saying what to him is an obvious question. What did I ever win? And Robustelli smiles and says, if you still have to ask, you won't ever know. And with that, Tittle, it finally hits him. The light bulb finally goes off. Son of a bitch. Maybe it actually was how I played the game. Maybe the fact that I didn't win is not what I'm defined by. Exactly. And so I ended the script with the brief exchange between old teammates and now Hall of Famers, where Y.A. Tittle, at the very end, as he's being inducted into the Pro, Pro Football Hall of Fame, finally has the come to Jesus moment where he realizes, my life wasn't wasted, I'm not a loser. It's how you play the game. I gave myself everything of myself on the field, and that's why they're cheering. They're not feeling sorry for me. They're appreciative of the effort I put out week in and week out. So when that draft was completed, and I and I sent it to all of the relevant people through the roof, through the roof, the agent again, this is incredible. I didn't think you had it in you to make the ending this good, blah, 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 blah director also said, we're ready to go. This is perfect. Sadly, what ended up happening was the proposed director never really took that script anywhere. He, in fact, left the movie business entirely. Well, he wasn't really in the movie business. He did not go forward in the movie business would be more accurate. And I didn't know this for months. I kept waiting for the kind of magical, life-altering phone call 
And then unfortunately, the agent who was kind of protecting me through this process passed away. And the guy who was supposed to direct the film, to use a football term that I've used before, he just punted. He punted. He left me holding the holding the bag. In this case, which was a screenplay, which I think was probably really good, but no means to finance, no means to put a project together. And once again, I was just a writer who had turned out an apparently solid script, but it was little more than a spec script at this point because none of the people that were supposed to be involved in the movie were now involved. One guy passed, and the other guy wasn't gonna wasn't gonna make the movie because he wasn't gonna he was not going to make the movie. He had some issues that went on at work and some family stuff. What are you gonna do? Shit happens. And I was left holding a bag and holding a screenplay, 117 page, apparent really good script called Giants and Heroes sometime in the year 2022 because this took quite some time to all play out. That script has not been read by anyone in Hollywood or seen since. Nobody has ever been interested. And that's the problem. And I'm not the only writer who had something like this happen. When you, when your project has a kind of narrow audience where there's not going to be a ton of people interested off the bat, it's very difficult because out of context, why would anybody give a shit about YA Tittle? If you're going to make a movie about a football player, there's a lot of other football players from the, that era, you know, like Joe Namath or, or someone like that. You would really have to want to want to make the movie ahead of time to make this movie. And that was it. You know, the project fell apart sometime in early to mid 2002. And I just started hearing from the filmmaker less and less. And I realized sometime in late 2002, this is a dead project. I literally spent all this time, did all this research, and this guy just basically shrugged his shoulders and said, eh. gave me the, metaphorically speaking, gave me the finger. Didn't do anything to help set it up elsewhere. Because there was a version of the story, meaning how this could have played out, where he felt so bad about the amount of work I put in and everybody telling him how great this was, hey, maybe I can help you get it set up. I can maybe use my contacts. No, he didn't. He didn't do anything. And um, yeah, that was a, a real difficult body blow to try to get over. You, you know, because you, I said in the last, the last one, don't ever spend money you haven't made yet. I mean, that applies to anything. But it seemed to be as with the Brooklyn Dodger script, it seemed to be on the cusp of happening, that all of the pieces were falling into place, that this was going to be made. You know, all I had to do was provide a script. I did. And when I realized that it was, it had fallen apart and I was just left there, literally hung out to dry. Man, that was rough. You know, I didn't quit. I didn't give up on writing, but you know, for the second time, well, like third time, but I thought that something was going to go and it didn't. And I had to scramble now to, you know, what else can we do? Try another project. Lo and behold, not long after the dissolution of Giants and Heroes, I got another gig using 
the previous script I spoke of, the Brooklyn Dodger screenplay in Empty Place, as a writing sample, I got another gig not long after Giants and Heroes evaporated. That's a story for another podcast. We have reached the end of the Bernie Williams episode number 51 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I'd like to thank you all once again for joining me on my drive home here. As this, as I tell this kind of ridiculous, another ridiculous in the trenches movie story, but all true, all sourced, all verifiable, this all happened. But if you're checking out episode 51 on the YouTube channel, haven't done so already, don't forget to click like, smash the subscriber bell, turn on the notifications, or if you're checking this out on the audio platforms like Spotify or iTunes, same rule applies. Don't forget to click like, subscribe turn on the notifications. I'll be back with episode 52 real, real soon.